internet, you won't be attending that hat convention in July. My name is Matthew Kroll. And Bunny... Ball Ball. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Hudson Hawk. Are you talking about the 21, 2021 release Hudson Hawk? That's what no. we're talking about? No. Oh, Roll God. back the machine. <laughs> How many years? Uh, 2018? Numbers back to 1991, but we're doing Jesus. this for a very specific reason <laughs> with a very specific friend. Um, Shahir, why don't you talk through this and then introduce our illustrious guest? Well, now we've made it awkward because now he's just going to be sitting there waiting for us to introduce uh, introduce him. But, you know, Patrick, just sit there for a second, okay, while I talk about you. Just sit there. Uh, Patrick Hosmer... <laughs> he is, gave the thumbs up! <laughs> ...is a wonderful animator designer who we've had on the show many a time before. I believe for the last time was for the Wes Anderson film, Isle of Dogs. Yes. And... On that episode, we asked you what your, your not necessarily what your favorite movie is, but what a movie that you just love. And, and Patrick, how are you, first of all? Hi, uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. How are you? Great. The, the, the second question is, <laughs> I believe you wholeheartedly, Shahir. What was the movie you chose back then? What was the movie you chose? I chose Mystery Alaska. But... Which is an excellent movie, but in recent conversations we've 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 gone back and forth a little bit, and you suggested that that may have been a lie. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lie maybe. I, I do love that movie, but I, I did recently see Hudson Hawk pop up on HBO Max, and then I realized that that actually is my favorite movie. And I thought this would be a great opportunity because Hudson Hawk is a personal favorite of mine as well, a movie that played uh, over and over on a VHS cassette tape of mine uh, to the point of actually, you know, the tape actually like faded away and got like thin at one point, you know, when you could see right through it. Um, so this was an opportunity to revisit uh, a classic, uh, a classic classic, which which famously bombed and earned two Razzies in the year 1991, <laughs> uh, uh, which was a seminal, you know, when I look back at 1991, was a particularly seminal year in film. Uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day was the number one global box office phenomenon that came out that year. Mm -hmm. uh, Dances with Wolves uh, and Silence of the Lambs were both released in that year and then won Oscars in their separate year. Very big uh, Oscar movie for animal titles. Yeah, yeah. Um, year. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, Kindergarten Cop came out, which is also an important film in the in the oeuvre of of our of everything we talk about. Boys Take have fear. penises, girls have vaginas. That, that is true. Thank you, and down in front. Um, <laughs> um, one of my favorites, What About Bob, came out as well. But there was a lot of oh. movies that year. Tucked at the bottom of the box office numbers of, the, of that year was the sixty or uh, originally budgeted forty nine at thirty million, slated to have a budget of approximately forty nine million on overruns purportedly may have landed in a budget of around 50-something million. And if you recall at the time, Terminator 2 was the most expensive movie that ever got made with a budget of $82 million. Um, and 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 coming in with a, with a final box office take domestically of around $17 million was one of my favorite movies of all time, Hudson Hawk. I am so excited to talk about this movie. So, Patrick, thank you for bringing this back up. I'm very thank curious. Thank you for bringing me on. <laughs> I'm very curious, Patrick. Where, like, you, you mentioned it's on HBO Max right now, streaming on HBO Max. How did you see this movie for the first time? I think I rented it with my brother. 
Mm-hmm. And like my, I have an older brother who was really excited for this movie, but somehow we did not see it in the theater. I don't remember it being in the theater at all, actually. But I remember we rented it like ten times. Yeah. So it was it was definitely home viewing, for sure. Yeah, but and you had to keep coming back to it. Had to keep coming back to it. That's the funny thing is like I I feel like this is one of those movies I wish I could say like oh every time it's on TV I stop what I'm doing and I watch it but it's it's literally never on TV like it's only <laughs> a home video I feel like which yeah. is why it was so weird to see on HBO. Uh, Matt, had you seen Hudson Hawk before? So here's the 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 the, the trickery of it all. I thought I had. Mm. <laughs> But then what I watched last night was not the same film that I remembered. I think I built an amalgamation of Bruce Willis performances in my mind and considered it Hudson Hawk. Like, I was trying to figure out why nothing connected. Like, when it started with, like, Da Vinci shit, I was like, what the fuck movie is this? Mm. Uh, So to be perfectly uh, clear and transparent, I think last night was the first time I watched Hudson Hawk. Um, I knew things about it. It's one of those maybe cultural black holes that I just sort of never hit on, especially because, let's be very clear, 1991, uh, a a young Matthew Kroll had eyes only but for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I don't know if there was any room in my heart uh, for any other film that year. And um, it's funny, like, I didn't know <laughs> from the beginning with the with the copper to gold or lead to gold or whatever the hell the thing was. I was like, "Where where is this going?" It do, like with the narrator, it's like, "Oh, this is a Da Vinci's house, and there's this thing, a guy, the donkey's a guy, and the donkey." And I'm like, "What the <laughs> fuck? Where's Bruce? He's a cat burglar? What the shit?" So last night uh, is my answer. I saw it last night. Well, that's perfect. So we've got two diehards on this, so to speak. Or diehard two dieharders. Oh, yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah, or dieharders with vengeances. Yeah, and one diehard 4.0. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, no. One live free or diehard. Thank you. <laughs> um, the, yeah, for me personally, I'm not, uh, I, uh, I feel like. I actually do think I saw this at a movie theater because I felt like it came out in the movies and in New Zealand and I went to see it and I absolutely loved it. And I I remember it was just a film. There was was a repertoire of films that would, uh, that we would always watch on summer vacation. If we were going to a friend's place and they had a VHS player, uh, there was a, there was a, just a very small cycling of films. And this one was very much at the top of it because we loved quoting this movie and there's something very uh teenage boy about bruce willis's performance here he's a wisecrack um you know he's funny he jumps you know he is a a a great cat burglar so there was something just very appealing to teenage boys about this movie and it played a lot over like the summers from 1992 uh, into my into my 20s. Uh, so I was very excited to revisit this one, um, and and then sort of excited to to dive deep into the notion that this is uh, somewhat of a cult favorite now, but also something that was critically reviled at the time. But a movie I didn't actually realize was critically reviled at the time, and just kind of personally loved. And when I watched it again, I'm you know, spoilers for my opinions on this, still kind of love. But maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Um, 
The other th- reason I was excited about this was that I had been listening to a podcast uh, by the TCM network called The Plot Thickens, which is about the making of the Brian De Palma film, The Vanity, uh, The Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, which features Tom Hanks, Melanie Griffith, and one Bruce Willis. Um, and this is it's a really interesting podcast because they they talk. It, there's a lot of inside detail on on how the Bonfire of the Vanities get made. In it, they sort of loosely reference the fact that that uh, Bruce Willis was coming off Die Hard and was suddenly a huge mega uh, a huge mega star and but he still wanted sort of critical uh success uh and so wanted to do a film like bonfire of the vanities with someone like brian de palma um uh but then was immediately going to follow leave the production to go film hudson hawk uh the his next movie in there and there's there like just just as an aside there's this amazing thing in the podcast which is that they uh at all times the host confirms the fact and has tapes of the fact of everyone talking about how nice a person Tom Hanks is and how much everybody loves Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks com- always goes out of his way to to make everybody feel good. Even to this day, if he meets people on the, from the crew of Bonfire of the Vanities, he still goes up and gives them a hug. At the sa- within the same breath, they, she talks very often about how much she disliked Bruce Willis and how <laughs> difficult Bruce Willis was on set and how much Bruce Willis uh, as a person was wrestling with celebrity in probably the worst possible way which is that it he, she the way she she described it is that it had all gone to his head um well how it could funny. it not after look who's talking to uh and, the film that came out the year before <laughs> along with die hard 2 i mean the guy was on a uh, on a home run streak of movies you know until bonfire oh, yeah. of the vanities and hudson hawk but i mean Die Hard. This was also like post Bruno too, right? Like he he like recorded an album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a musical guy, Uh, and so yeah, he was really, really, um, really doing well. And you know, like he was. uh, I I think even in that podcast, they talk about he talks about. Of course, he talks about the fact that if they put him on a cover of a magazine at the time, the sales of that magazine would increase by like two hundred percent or something along those lines. He he seemed to be very aware of that statistic. Um, So I was excited to to get into this conversation uh, because I love this movie well, so much. And this, it, it, I, my, one of my first notes I wrote as I was watching this, I was like, ah, yes, we're back in the time when Bruce Willis gave a shit. Yeah. Like, like he, you can tell in what he's doing, even in the silliness, like he's giving it his all. He's not collecting a paycheck or doing something silly. He's like, he's bought, sold, paid for, like everything in this is like, yep. Uh, he is committed to the role of the cat burglar Hudson Hawk in this weird sh- batshit chicanery. Well, well that's, were, like, yeah. was it obvious that he, this was also like very much a vanity project? Like, yeah, I, I'm this pretty was sure he baby. got like a writer, a writing credit, and I think his buddy like wrote the script. Like, yeah, he was very much like building. You know, this thing was made off of his steam, basically, right? Yeah. Exactly. He and Robert Kraft um, put this thing together, and Ro- he and Robert Kraft were were kind of musician friends back in New York City. And this was a project that they had nurtured through, based on, of all things, a song that they had written together. And Matt, before we go into the uh, the IMD synopsis of this, I found, and and this is just me falling down this rabbit hole as far as I could, <laughs> found uh, a, a sort of delightful three-part making of series about uh, w- with uh, Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft sitting uh, in front of a piano talking about 
how this movie came about and what it meant to them and and, and all of that. I also I, I just I took that those three interviews and started cutting it up and just seeing if I could make something concise out of it. Uh, and I also found uh, a great Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. Um, review of the film and uh, and put that together into this little package about how this movie came about. Look at so this. Why don't we just take a listen to that because I think I like the like the thing you just said uh, Matt and and Patrick uh, about Bruce Willis caring about it. I think it's really important to know where this movie comes from. Let's take a listen. It was a song before it was a story. Exactly right. I've been reading about Coleman Hawkins. Coleman Hawkins was known as the Hawk and in the same period of reading i also have been reading about chicago and the wind that blows off the lake in chicago is also called the hawk and i was walking west on 86th street from central park and one of those incredible winds came off the hudson river one of those winds that was so powerful you could actually have fun leaning forward and seeing if it would hold you up it was that kind of wind and i had this idea that if it's the hawk in chicago and coleman hawk somehow i thought Maybe this wind is the Hudson Hawk. Nickel in his pocket. Time on both his hands. Little time if I took. 49th and 10th. See, that's what it was. I used to visit. The song was really about where I was living. That's right. It's 49th and 10th. Hudson Hawk again. Let it rain, let it snow, let the north wind blow. It's the Hudson Hawk, your friend. You know, looking at how it kind of became this cult film, and what people, you know, come up and say to me on on the street about it is they, you know, dig the fact that it was making fun of itself. And me and um, Danny Aiello singing in a movie was just unheard of. And they were, you know, people were mad about it or something. Like they were mad that we were trying to make them laugh. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry movies home in a job. And be better off than you are. Oh, won't you rather be amused? Hudson Hawk does have some funny lines from Bruce Willis, but this project was ill-conceived, I think, right at the script level. It was. In fact, it's unbelievable that anyone could have read the script of this movie and thought that it could be produced as a successful film. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. It was vilified, I think, more than any film of uh, its time, of its decade. Bruce has a uh, unique ability to be resilient. I think I was distressed, hurt, and I don't think I can say what you actually said, but... I said, you, fuck it. I said, yeah, whatever, right. you know what I mean? It doesn't That's matter. It. Bruce just said, you know what, man, if they don't get it, on to the next. To fool the people is his only thought, and though he's slippery, he still gets caught. I just, I, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to apologize for making this film. I thought it was I thought it was funny then. I think it's funny now. I think it holds up. You know, we're both still around. Nobody chased us out of town. And, uh, you know, we're, st we're still doing it. Let's take it home. You could be swinging on a <laughs> Matt, what is the IMDb synopsis for Hudson Hawk? <laughs> 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 I don't know if I could do it more justice than uh, Mr. Willis and Co. 
Uh, but I am Debe says that Hudson Hawk is a cat burglar is forced to steal Da Vinci works of art for a world domination plot. World domination. It's correct. That is that is what the movie is about. Um, man, I loved that little piece you just put together, uh, Shahir, because even in that, the way that they're talking about it is is the way that I talk about projects that like are ill received, <laughs> and I'm trying to save face about. Like not not that they have anything to be ashamed about, but like they're acting like they're okay with it. Like oh you know whatever, like yeah, fuck it, move on to the next one. It's like no, right. <laughs> no, I don't think that's how you feel because that's not how I feel when something I love tanks. So. I don't know. It's so funny. I love hearing like larger than life names like a Bruce Willis sort of not. I don't I wish anyone ill will, but I like it when human sort of like actual emotions come through in, in discussions of their works. And that was definitely one of them. What did you think of the movie first time around? Mm, it's fine. Like, <laughs> I, look, here's 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 the case. Here's the here's the thing. I. A, love that this movie exists, but I think it falls into a category of a lot of my sort of favorite silly films, and that is like having a long-term history with it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I liked elements that it did on a cold watch. I loved the singing. I thought that the, the, the timing, like the way that they judged timing based on songs was a very clever mechanic. Uh, I liked the small running gags of like the cappuccinos never being finished. Um, the, even even the wackadoo sort of one-liners that came out of nowhere and did not fit at all anywhere. Like some of them were endearing, but if I'm looking at it from a perspective where I have literally no nostalgic feelings for it, like. It's one of those things where I look at this and I'm like, ah, yes, I can totally see why this is someone's absolute cup of tea who grew up with it. I have films like that, Master of the Universe, Gremlins, like a bunch of stuff where if other people who watch it today for the first time might be like, I okay. <laughs> um, and that's kind of where I'm at with the movie. Uh, obviously, it doesn't. There's certain elements of it that don't fully hold up, um, you know, just from uh, uh, you know where we are in 2021. I'll I'll call it I'll call it um uh light racism and homophobia uh but then again it was 1991 and this stuff was sort of prevalent all throughout uh cinema in, in this sort of caliber of stuff anyway um the I don't know it also did have some very fun elements to it that I was not expecting the candy bar CIA <laughs> Loved it. Also, David Caruso as Kit Kat? Yeah. What the shit? Okay. Well, this is before so, Caruso blew up for, oh, a, moment, I know. for, oh, for a hot minute. I'm very... For, yeah, it yeah. must have been. Yeah. I mean, surprisingly, like, pretty robust cast overall. I mean... Yeah. Actually... Really, Andy McDowell, James Coburn. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Patrick... Richard E. Grant. Patrick Bernhard. Richard E. Grant. Our, our collective professional... Um, almost um, would have been collaborator is in this film. Uh, do you know of whom I speak? Yes, hello, hi. I am so-and-so from so-and-so talent agency, and I represent Frank Stallone. 
Yeah, uh, we got a cold call at Guy Code years ago uh, of Frank Stallone's people wanting to get Frank Stallone on Guy Code. Wanting to get some of that sweet guy code action. <laughs> some uh, of that sweet 2007 or whatever guy code yeah. action. I'm sure he had a he had a really good backlog of like. Was it was it sort of sure. a was it a Trump Trump like situation where it's like, hey, uh, uh, yeah, this is Frank. I mean, uh, Frank Stallone's uh, <laughs> no, agent was, calling you. It was. Uh, just, I really want to give my client uh, Frank. And the reason <laughs> the reason I bring it up is the the <laughs> we heard the voicemail left by the agent, and it was just it was it was sort of one of those like one of the umpteenth memeable internal moments of that show uh, <laughs> that that just kept coming back. Yeah, not not to go off on a tangent. I mean, the the funniest thing about that voicemail though was that it was a cartoon. Like the voicemail was like, "So I have a, a client who really loves the show, really wants to be on the show." Blah blah blah. Like it went on for like a minute, and then at the very end, it's like, "Oh, by the way, the client's Frank Stallone." Goodbye. Yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very, it was an odd cartoonish thing. So when I saw Frank here, uh, and I knew you were coming on the podcast, I was like, "Oh, look at that! It's all it's all connected." I didn't even realize that was Frank Stallone until like when I just rewatched this. Yeah. This viewing was the first time I realized it was Frank Stallone. Yeah. Caesar. So, so Matt, overall, you kind of enjoyed it. Kind of. Overall, you you saw, you saw it for its place in history. I, yes. And I am, I am, I am hyper thankful that it exists. However, it's not something that I see myself sort of going back and revisiting. Um, But again, I want to make it very clear I understand the type of feelings a movie like this can give someone. And I and I love I love that it's maligned. Like I didn't know it was maligned. Like I didn't know like I, I didn't it. know that it history. actually it actually won the Razzie for worst picture that year. I mean, that's it, so it's, funny. it's that seems very very strange considering it, it's like you can follow it. Like it's not, no, it's not a also, disaster. No, you can't. No, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I love about the movie is that it's actually like there's no consistency, like moment to moment, scene to scene. Like <laughs> it, like they couldn't even. It's so inconsistent. They they couldn't even stick with that idea of like he never gets to drink the cappuccino. Like they did it like twice, and then they just stopped doing it. And but then they bring the, it back at the end. Yeah. The, but, yeah, yeah. I like it as a runner. But like it's it's like it's like the movie. I think part of the reason why maybe we loved it as kids is and why probably adults hate it is that it's totally like kid brain. It's like ADHD brain. Yeah. We're like they don't really stick to any, you know, there's no through line really. It's just like Looney Tunes kind well, of yeah, like it's an, it's Bruce Willis is definitely Bugs Bunny for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I was like gonna Looney Tune. I was gonna equate it to Animaniacs. It felt very much like an Animaniacs episode. Yeah, um, and, and it even has some of the like, like I think the 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 final James Coburn Bruce Willis uh, rooftop fight has a, a very Looney Tunes is quality to it. Oh, for sure. Like setting up the pattern of he's gonna go this way, he's gonna go that way, he's gonna yeah. go this way. Nope. Oh my hat. He's going the other way. <laughs> But the interesting um, thing you say it's it's not not uh, you can't follow it. It's interesting. Like I guess in a classical narrative sense you can't. But again, something that I always harp on and I love that films do is setting up how the rules of how the film functions, and then following them. And this film decided to go batshit cartoon town, and then it followed that structure throughout the entire thing. So. I it's it's following the structure of lunacy. Uh, and I, for one, was like, OK, I see what you're doing, film. I respect you are sticking with literally 
not sticking with anything. Like I, I understand <laughs> that that weird sort of side element to it. Uh, I think I have an irrational love for this movie. <laughs> I, I just have a completely irrational uh, love for this movie, which is I, 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 I can totally see. Uh, things like uh, I have a lot of negative reviews in front of me. Pete Travers of Rolling Stone said the movie, a movie this unspeakably awful can make an audience a little crazy. You want to throw things, yell at the actors, beg them to stop. Uh, Kenneth Durant of the Los Angeles Times wrote, the saddest thing about Hudson Hawk is that director Lehman and co-screenwriters Waters were previously responsible for the clever, audacious, and also requested on this podcast film, Heathers, a film that mm. represented all the most promising about American film, while this one represents all that is most moribund and retro grade perhaps they both earned enough money here so they won't be tempted to indulge themselves in similar big budget fiascos but this is my favorite quote because uh in a, in a retrospective from the guardian mark kermo uh the the author wrote when mark kermo expressed his admiration for the critically maligned bond spoof hudson hawk to richard e grant the actor's response was that it was a pile of steaming hot donkey droppings and you are an idiot um, <laughs> see that to me, that to me makes me love this movie even more because but that's Richard E. Grant talking sure, about the movie. <laughs> but, my, but like to get mad at this thing's existence, I think is a real idiot test. Like, <laughs> like you could be like, oh yeah, silly movie, you know, whatever. It didn't appeal to me. Like, but to act like it's a affront against God is like a weird take, even in '91. Like, if we recall, a few years later, the last action hero came out with uh, with Sylvester Stallone, and I think that with Arnold movie, Schwarzenegger. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, sorry. Well, Sylvester Stallone makes a. Although Sylvester movie. Stallone is in it, in, 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 in the cardboard movie. cutout. His picture is in a cardboard cutout <laughs> as the Terminator. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that movie was much mal maligned as well in terms of being an affront to what we understand about action movies. But so now, I think that, if you look at that film, oh, it's a much loved film, yeah. and I and I want to lead the charge. To say that Hudson, Hudson Hawk should be reappraised in the annals of cultural uh, relevancy and come back today, and I and I will uh, I will lobby what minor power I have to direct the gritty reboot of Hudson Hawk or the the aged reboot of <laughs> Hudson Hawk with uh, with uh, Bruce Willis wandering the streets of New York City, unable to be a cat burglar anymore, and brought back in for one last uh, heist. I, I'd be curious to know what the CIA codenames would be for the for the gritty reboot. Oh yeah, it'd be like, like Four like, Loco and, and like uh, Surge. You know, for, for some Bar. reason, I have I imagine them all TikTok. drinking different flavors of Starbucks. So it'd be like matcha latte <laughs> and mochaccino. They're I don't all, know why. <laughs> I think they should be they should be uh, social media platforms. <laughs> TikTok, Snapchat, oh TikTok, nah. Snapchat, Instagram, uh, you know, Friendster. But the um, thing I loved about this movie now, it, the, the, the one thing I, I so I, again, I will I, I will wholeheartedly agree with anyone who doesn't enjoy this film. And, and I agree, uh, Patrick, with you that that this movie functions on a level of kid logic, which is perhaps what was appealing about it when we were young. And, you know, it was fun to watch over and over and over again. But the one thing I kind of did love this time around was was how weird and twisted the villains were the mayflowers to me were so interesting every time they were on screen where i was like oh these are like the billionaire uh villains who have like some you know weird plan the kind of things that we've seen in like a million superhero movies since but these guys are truly fucked up and kinky and weird and like and like 
you, you sort of, I, I watched and I was going, that, what they've tapped into here is really this thing about bil- about billionaire villains that I think maybe we've forgotten about, <laughs> which is that they're completely detached from any reality. These two characters are so far removed from any kind of reality that I was just like, I was like struck by how how compelled I was by them, like how, you know, like interesting I thought they were and, and how much it worked. Then there's like these multiple plots in this movie inc- involving like, um, you know, Andy McDowell's character, who's the, 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 the secret agent, double agent nun working for the Vatican and the CIA who falls in love with Hudson Hawk. Uh, the, the, the sort of the, the sort of genuine friendship between Danny Aiello, rest in peace and Bruce Willis in this movie really just landed for me. And I think, you know, that gimmick of singing through heists is so good. Like, I, I love the singing on a star sequence as a sequence unto itself. I just think that is such a great uh, moment. And so I, I, I just, just to sort of pull it up once more, uh, Richard Brody of The New Yorker did a, uh, a revisit. He had never watched the film before, so it was a, so a reappraisal of this film. And, you know, he talked about the fact that he didn't really know much about it. Um, and he said, you know, the, uh, I only knew of Hudson Hawk from its reputation and has long been curious to see what actually resulted. The short answer is it's far from a masterwork, but at its best moments, the movie is vastly superior to the earnest classics of the genre, not merely in its satirical imagination, but in its cinematic imagination overall and in its power to astonish. Um, I had, and this is what he quotes, I had more fun with Hudson Hawk than I ever did with Die Hard or The Terminator because it offers from beginning to end such a prodigious, even profligate display of imagination. It veers off in directions that are surprising as they are idiosyncratic. The movie's identity is distinctive and integral, and it really is a unique experience. And I, 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 I appropriate that comment as the way I feel about it. I, I do just... I get a kick out of this movie and I'm surprised at the directions it goes. And it, like I watched uh, um, uh, Tony Scott's film, The Last Boy Scout, just recently as well, uh, which came out literally the next year. or It might even come out in the same year as this movie. And it's amazing to see Bruce Willis engaged versus Bruce Willis cashing a paycheck. Same and, year. And same he's, year. He's great in The Last Boy Scout, but it's like... It literally looks like he's aged like 30 years between these two movies. Um, <laughs> it's sort of really surprising how tired he looks in, uh, in uh, The Last Boy Scout. On purpose, but it's like, it's just such a, there's this energy to him that like reminds me of the moonlighting years and what was so cool about him uh, in those early years. Yeah, he, does, he actually does like a surprising amount of smiling in this movie, which was yeah. like, on, on a rewatch, the, kind of the thing that jumped out. And also like, I don't know. I'm trying to remember like what it was like when my brother first told me about this movie. He's like, Oh, it's Bruce Willis as a cat burglar. And I'd never even heard that term before. Like yeah. I didn't know what I, and I was like, okay, that's, this sounds interesting. But like thinking about it, watching the movie again too, it's like, Oh, right. This was actually, I think my for like my introduction into like thieving that could be fun, <laughs> you know, like crime, I feel like, fun like, crime. Yeah, crime, even like Muppets Take Manhattan, like the thieves were still kind of serious. You know what I mean? Like, I I feel like all thief movies are generally pretty serious. And this was my first time seeing it, like, not just fun, but like, like very absurd, right? Like he's riding, he's, he's riding skateboards through an auction house. And like, the day he gets out of prison, and like, it's, it's totally like unearned that he's just like, 
already known as the best cat thief in the world. <laughs> yeah, he's been he's been in prison so long he doesn't know what a Nintendo or ET is, and yet he right. immediately knows how to. Well, he Danny Aiello obviously helps him with the security system, which is a little bit dated of its time. Um, but but I, yeah, I love that he like he. I I think this this movie knows that they need to insert a joke in every moment and they insert a joke in every moment and most of them for, for me kind of land like i love like him looking at danny aiello he's about to cut the glass for the uh, for the circle and he goes i think i'll just make this a little bit wider and also mm-hmm. like you know like this idea there's a sort of odd runner in this movie which is that people will jump off buildings land on awnings but it'll immediately land into the next scene of the movie yeah which is just a I great looney tunes kind of gag that i have stolen many a time since yeah, as a kid, I actually thought like I never understood any of those moments, and I th- I took them very literally. Like I thought he was fall. Like I thought when he, he lands, fell into, into the it was yeah. underneath the awning, <laughs> and just like <laughs> that's where the mobsters live, <laughs> like in the basement of the uh, underneath the hotel, I guess. Yeah, uh, I have a question that's a little off topic, but I I've been wondering this since watching this film. What is the difference between a cat burglar and a and a regular old burglar? I think it's the pants. I really think it's the pants. It's, yeah? it's, 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 it's the outfit. It's the pants and the turtleneck. No, I think... Uh, uh, a, it's, well, it's the laser I, jungle, right? Cat burglars are... There's always a laser jungle that they have to Yeah, we're talking entrapment. Past. We're talking Ocean's 12. <laughs> okay, we're so talking right. to catch a thief. So you gotta uh, be... You gotta, you gotta, you gotta be, be a little to, sexy to be a cat burglar. Yeah, I was gonna say, you have to be sexy and, and defeat intricate protection measures. Isn't Catwoman a cat burglar as well? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Her whole thing is cats. Like that's fine. But like, I, I you know, and I know that there are uh, the, you know, it goes across the spectrum of, of who can be a cat burglar. But I just, I, is it just the stealth and kind of looking sexy? Is that re- and and intricate foilings of complex traps uh, yeah. in museums yeah. and things. Like that's, that, that's what it is. Because you think, okay, look at Michael Mann's thief, right? James Caan yeah. is yeah. a thief. He's a thief, right. but he's, he's not, not a cat, cat burglar. He's not a cat burglar. Yeah, the I don't even think he wears black. I think he was wearing like a Canadian tuxedo through that whole movie. Yeah. He wasn't even trying to hide that much. He was just kind of walking around with a flamethrower. So you know, I'm rem- I'm remembering uh, uh, the episode of The Simpsons where they're trying to catch the cat burglar, Homer the Vigilante, and uh, Marge, like the cat burglar, starts calling into the news stations, and everyone's like, "Well, how could he be that bad? He's so charming." And it was like Sam Neill plays the cat burglar, and everyone's just like likes the cat burglar, and like. <laughs> I think the other thing is the cat burglar steals things from like museums, you know, like things yeah. that like doesn't affect people directly. A cat burglar doesn't go into your house and like steal shit from your house. They steal expensive shit from museums that have got covered by insurance. All right. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. But uh, but if you were to categorize it, it's a turtleneck and black slacks. That's what makes a cat burglar. And maybe maybe uh, a, like a beanie, but not one that's like rolled down over your face. Not a ski oh. mask, but like a beanie. And potentially, like, uh, looking like John Malkovich, who yeah. apparently gets mistaken. He gets mistaken for a cat burglar all the time. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, you know what else? Um, uh, thumb cuffs. That makes you a cat burglar. Thumb, thumb cuffs. Yeah, right, yeah. What the fuck was with the thumb cuffs? <laughs> I don't know. It's just a, it's a great runner. 
Is it a great runner? It like is a great runner. It's a runner. <laughs> it sure the, is a runner. The, the hilarious thing. The hilarious thing in that scene. Uh, so there's a scene where Bruce Willis is is uh, breaking into the first museum. Two guards jump in on him. Danny Aiello trips them up with a rope that I think he has on the space of this. And then Bruce Willis like doinks their head together like with barely a tap, <laughs> and they pass out. I think that's the funniest part about that scene. It was just like the little doink. <laughs> yeah, and you hear like a little coconut sound, just like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. I, I want to know. I want to hear the Bruce Willis interview about how they came up with the Da Vinci subplot. Like, like it's so. I, I t- <laughs> do you know it? Well, the I mean, the thing about it is they um, the film was again conceived as a song, and and basically the way Willis talks about it is like, what was. James Bond like when he was in his 20s was he you know before he became a spy was he sort of like this rogue thief kind of thing and they had all sorts of that that was basically the inception for the entire movie and uh this is interesting as well because the screenwriter Stephen D'Souza uh mentions the fact that he's in a he's in a meeting with Joel Silver and they're sort of prepping uh who produces uh, Hudson Hawk and also produced the Die Hard movies and he talks about that that Bruce Willis gets gets a call from the studio that's producing the Bonfire of the Vanities, and the call says, um, "Hey Bruce, uh, just wanted to let you know we've tested the movie, and everybody loves you in it. We're going to recut the movie so that you know you're in it. You're you're a much bigger part in it." And Joel Silver turns to De- Stephen D'Souza after they've uh, after he's hung up and says, "You know what just happened? Those guys just fucked our movie because now we have to kowtow to anything Bruce Willis wants because he's a he's a selling point now, even though he was kind of with Die Hard anyway, and so." Uh, the way Robert Kraft and Bruce Willis talk about it is they needed a location and they were just like, we want, let's go to Venice or Italy or somewhere like that. And then, <laughs> wow. and then once they had the location, they were like, well, what would we steal if we went to Italy? If we were two New York guys that went to Italy to steal something, what would it be? And lo and behold, the Da Vinci Codex was born. Wow. This is like, that's, I feel like they kind of like wrote the blueprint for like how they made the oceans movies or how they made like (laughs) mission impossible movies, or they're like, they picked the vacation location first. Let's write the story around that. It's a travel. Lake Como. Let's do it. Yeah, Let's see what we can steal from Lake Como. Let's go to George Clooney's house in Lake Como. (laughs) It's just going to be a bunch of the original oceans living script. The original Nespresso (laughs) machine. Yeah. Um, Even better. Even, even though they were like, okay, fine. Rome, that's our entry point. Yeah. Da Vinci's a horse guy. Like, it still doesn't make any sense. They're like, okay, he made a machine that makes gold. <laughs> like, by accident? That still doesn't was, have anything to do with, I, you know, I, I he just was think there was to a do lot copper? Of, like, I don't... He was trying to do bronze, right? Like, yeah, or something bronze. like that. Yeah, bronze. I, I just gold. think, like, it was just this thing, which was that, okay, we've got a cat burglar. He's Bruce Willis. We need to get him to Rome. How do we get him to Rome? Once he's in Rome, what does he steal? Okay, I read this article like on the in the New Yorker magazine about you know Leonardo da Vinci's early inventions. Let's throw something like that in there. And what I what I think is cool though is that the movie kind of takes that stuff not seriously, but like understands to structure it around the story as opposed to structuring it around Bruce Willis, you know, like it, it starts yes. with the Da Vinci mythology and you like you you walk into this movie and you're like, hey, I, I was here to see like some hijinks with Bruce Willis. Um, and but instead you're in, you know, uh, Italy in the 1800s. I am a big fan 
of fun heroes thrown into movies that is not about them. I.e., yeah. go see like uh, you know, Big Trouble in Little China. Mm. Like that. Like that's not about you know uh, Kurt Russell's character. That's a, a whole thing is happening around him, and he's just kind of there getting hit in the head with shit. Like so. Totally true, right? Like, they're both fish out of water stories. They're both movies where, like, things happen to the guy the whole time. But yeah. I would say that, like, the difference is that the whole Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China is always like, what the fuck? And <laughs> Hudson, oh, like, yeah. Hudson Hawk does not seem to be affected by totally, <laughs> He's just totally. Like, it's a fish out of water where, like, it, it has no effect on him. <laughs> but, I, but I'm even going beyond fish out of water. Like, you could argue that Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman film, is a fish out of water film, right? Like, but right. the movie follows and is about Wonder Woman's journey. In Big Trouble and in Hudson Hawk, the movie's just happening around them, and they're just there. Like it's literally an RPG campaign, and they're one player that might get to do something. Like it's very, it's very refreshing to see. Um, but, uh, yeah, but also this is you know like in the in the world of Joel Silver, you know like one of the most prolific producers uh, of of modern action blockbusters. You know, this is how they work. You know, like I, I was rewatching Robert Altman's The Player, where people are pitching movies, and it is like they're just pulling threads from one place after uh, after another. You know, like the original Die Hard movie, for example. Oh no, sorry, uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, the third Die Hard movie, was a completely different screenplay uh, for a completely different film. Where <laughs> and then someone said, it's, you know, like someone in in the at the studio bought it, and then and then there was a meeting. Was like, well, what's the plot for the Die Hard movie going to be? And they were like, well, we've got this other script about this other movie. Let's just change it into a Die Hard movie. You right, know, I think they did that like, all the time. This is all, you know, like yeah. this is how movies like this, which aren't started with a screenplay, uh, but are started with the idea of making a movie, are kind of pulling at all these different threads, you know? I'm sure I'm sure they were still writing the screenplay while they were shooting. Oh, yeah, I think I, it, it's re, it's widely reported that uh, the reason there were so many budget overruns and there were so many problems on this film was that they didn't really have the screenplay uh, locked in <laughs> as they were making the movie. And and reportedly, again, I've just fallen so far to this loophole because I love this thing. Um, Bruce Willis would like turn up and with different gimmicks for his character every day and would just try them out. And they had hired Michael Lehman after he'd you know done Heathers and done well uh but uh i think one of the crew members there's a great new york times article about uh the budget overruns on this film uh talks about the fact is that like we all knew that bruce was really in charge of this whole thing um and you know like it was just this sort of um you know if you're hired to do a movie that bruce willis has like conceived of wants to do has gotten a, a three-picture deal with is a rising star and you're the director for hire on this thing it's hard to like argue with him um, sure uh, yeah and, and it's hard to like you know like for anyone they're just riding on bruce willis's success at this point as well yeah. also side note i just want to point out if you go to the imdb page for hudson hawk the first four of the 80 or something photos that they have all look like they should be out of Blade Runner. Like, yeah. I don't know what they're trying to do with that that sort of, like, look, but, like, they're all, like, these weird sort of, like, high contrast pull shots of, like, action beats or, like, the, the candy CIA, like, surrounding him with guns. Like, it's it's... It's quite weird, and I'm like, this isn't the film that I watched. I, I well, know these scenes happened. Well, the film was shot by Dante Spinotti, who went on to, like, do movies for uh, Martin Scorsese and um, 
uh, Michael Mann, uh, you know, great, one of the great, great cinematographers of all time. Uh, and, and, and again, I, the story is he was a last minute replacement on the movie. Like he was brought into the last minute uh, replacing the overrun production. Uh, Andy McDowell was also a last minute replacement as well. When the first actress that they hired, I believe an Italian actress, um, was having fainting spells. So they brought Andy McDowell in at the last minute. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I heard Isabella Rossellini was also supposed to do it, which would have changed it so sense. much. I feel like, right. As yeah. an agent of the Vatican, like that's, yeah. that would have, it, it's so funny that they replaced her with like a, a Southern American. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like it, it, it definitely adds to like the absurdity of it for sure. Yeah. It's got this. It would have made too much sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the other thing going back to the Mayflowers and, you know, I'm a sucker for, um, a, a silly villain, uh, uh, you know, to Dr. Evil level farce. Yeah, what was a, that cap, a Captain Planet villain. Sorry. To oh, yeah, that. no, like, it perfectly. They're basically Captain Planet. They villains. are Captain Planet villains. And like, but, but even to Shahir's point, in 2021, the thing that resonates the most is how, like, sadly relatable to reality their fucking scheme is like here's yeah. billionaires that are like hold on but like what if like yeah. we could just make a bunch of gold and like crash markets and then like rebuild everything and then we'd like have more billions we'd be like double billionaires and everyone's like what the shit like it's their plan is no less crazy than a man selling books online, becoming a billionaire that decides he wants to play astronaut so he can pretend like he came up with the idea to basically make the expanse real. Like it's, it's, it's just as ludicrous, except this is a film and it's supposed to be batshit, but we actually live in real life of the other one. Right. They were basically like, what's more money than money? Yeah. That's what yeah. Figure out. <laughs> yeah. Like that but was their goal. I, but I think I, my favorite, yeah. my favorite little gimmick of the Mayflowers was like this visual gag that probably was like not easy to do. But do you remember like they they had like a super limo? Yeah, yeah, like, and, and yes, the, the best the, limos the, have the printer, the printer yeah, and so the shredder. I love that. The the limo has two love seats facing each other, mm. and Darwin Mayflower is sitting on one end, <laughs> and on one to his left is a fax machine, and to the right is a shredder. And yeah, <laughs> and it like prints out a document, and he just pulls it out, and then puts it into the shredder and the shreds like fly out of the exhaust. Like what a, what a perfect little sequence there. Yeah, and it like, so it, it just sort of existed by itself. It like, yeah, it didn't connect to anything. Well, nothing, I, I, not much I, connected to anything really. But, I, but I do love the, I do love a like weirdly sexually perverse. The Mayflowers are, you know, like I love that when they're, they're showing their photo slides, they're suddenly like these like six party photos with the Butler uh, in the middle of it. And I love like how the Mayflowers talk to each other in this like completely detached from reality, sexual way, you know, like outbid by my own winch and um, <laughs> you know, like don't hate me baby. And they start licking each other in, in front of other people. I just, or that this, they like, would like, that they could like you know shoot two guys in the head and then dance on their bodies you yeah, know it's yeah, like, like it's so twisted it's it's this got this like and, and like I, I guess what i like about that is this this idea that they're just so 
far removed from the everyday reality of what it means to be a normal human being that like <laughs> th- that it's not just that their plan is you know fucked up and weird but like they're also sexually they're completely perverse like i love that when the the codex is finally in operation and richard e grant is standing next to it he just starts humping it like he's fucking the machine like he's just and he just starts <laughs> going at it and i was like i like i just love like that was a decision that was made on this movie and Richard E. Grant just kind of went with it and pretends to fuck the codex as he's about to like, you know, like thing. And then finally it climaxes all over him in gold. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> he brought yeah. the machine to climax. I, I do wonder how much of that was like Richard E. Grant really like inhabiting the character and kind of bringing something to that. Yeah. That what like, might not have even been like, you know, yeah. there in the script oh you don't think it was bruce willis just being like and then you know once the machine starts going just start fucking the machine just, just fuck, you gotta fuck, fuck the, the machine. machine you know what i'm saying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you know like kit kat like wearing uh wearing all those different outfits yeah and, you know, like i like this, i love this little detail of kit kat doesn't talk even when he gets shot and he like he hands her a card it's like it's like the the shredder thing which is a little detail where he hands he like all these cards fall from his like body and then he hands her a card saying i always liked you i that's such just that's, like a yeah such a great great little like uh weird detail that's like so unique yeah i was really happy to see like the whole time he's showing these cards and then when he dies you just see the cards spill everywhere like it was such a kind of a nice little reveal you're like where the fuck is he keeping those things the line that actually like the 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 line that i felt like wouldn't play in 2020 the most was and it was and it did surprise me when i heard it this time i was like what uh was when butterfinger says should i rape them yeah like in the car and i was like i was like wait what and then they give him a book they give him a dr zeus book to read he's like butterfinger just read your book for a while and then, like, yeah don't rape just read read your cartoon yeah. books. that was like a moment where i was like whoa yeah and and you know like i think this movie has like a, a sort of cartoonish darkness to it but when it gets dark it's dark like there are beheadings there is like knives slicing people's heads and things like that you know like there's a it's it's pretty out there it's it with its verbal cues like that i think is the most egregious um it it i mean it's funny like even even at the time i don't think like looney tunes humor about a rape culture was really kind of a vibe that was going around. Like to take that swing is fucking weird, even in 1991. And it did like, I stopped it and rewound it and was like, like, what the fuck did you just say? (laughs) Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, you know, like the the stuff you expect Mm -hmm. from a film of that ilk is like when he's talking and he's sort of tongue tied with, um, with uh, super nun, Mm. And uh, he's like, oh, you know, you know, something like that. Like, I kiss this, I kiss that, I kiss my friend here. Like, you know, but I don't kiss guys. Like that sort of like super. I mean, I don't even know, like light uh, uh, homophobia, that sort of shit. Um, that's the kind of stuff you expect. But a full blown like <laughs> dropping that is like, a, oh, like a, a funny toss away line about this. I was like, dude, movie. <laughs> it, it did also. Right. It did just make me go, what have these guys been doing? You know, like these CIA, like. This this group of rogue CIA agents. I was like, what you, the? Fuck you know what's is? interesting? You know what's interesting? Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. That was this is why I think the majority of the movie works. But mm. that was the only moment that broke me out of the film. Like that, that I, particular moment or that, those characters? that line. No, no, right. just that line in that moment. Like I was like, 
I was on the ride and just that line ground me to a halt. And I was like, whoa, fuck, what? Yeah. And yeah. like, it's, it, yeah. Uh, and, and again, you know, we're looking at this through a lens years later. And, and was it ever okay? No. Uh, was it more, I guess, uh, cinematically socially acceptable? Again, I don't know. No, but, but, but oddly, and it's not condoning the line or anything like that, it made me, like, rather than make me go, what are the filmmakers thinking in this moment? It made me go, who are these characters? And like, because I also genuinely, because the way that character Butterfingers is set up, where he doesn't know what, he, like, where he's a big old dum-dum and, right. like, says dumb shit all the time, like, uh, to be in Parry in Love, uh, you were right. in Italy, but whatever. <laughs> um, right, right. Like, when he says that line, I go, okay, what is up with that guy? Like, See, what has that guy been doing? Because I also believe that that is something that character has done. You know what right, I mean? Right, exactly. Like, like, That's when you're like, you get you get a, a view into how he was recruited and why. You're like, yeah, oh, this guy does that. Right? Yeah, like, exactly. That's that's this. There's something within this world where that is a thing. And I was, I and guess, I guess, I guess, I just don't see value in that fact. If that's the case, like, th- like we already know he's a big, dumb, violent idiot. That doesn't add to anything about his character. Like, it, but, it no, no, still I agree. feels off even in the world they are setting up and it and personally it didn't make me interested like ooh, what's that character about it pulled me out and i it basically went into the mode of what was the filmmaker thinking like right. no i didn't i didn't get that because because the, the other thing is i think it was also in line with this idea that the film not the idea but the, this sort of mode of operation that the film has which is that every character has a life in this movie like has a life beyond the few frames that they are in the movie like i felt like the, like, for example, the relationship between uh, Frank Stallone and his brother was kind of, like, very hinted at that there was this, like, dumb brother and this smart brother. Yes. And, and right. you know, that's the way that, you know, like, there was, a, there was a whole story that was conceived around that character that's behind the scenes. I think there was, like, whole... I, I feel like, like every one of those CIA members had whole stories that were behind why they were who they were. Sure, uh, I get that. And they yeah. did that multiple times with every character, including Butterfinger. I'm saying that particular line did not serve that purpose for me at all. Because if you want to maintain your your sort of dissonance into a film, you, you don't have a screeching halt moment like that. And again, I don't know if, because I wasn't as uh, up to snuff with the sort of uh, lexicon of that during the day, but I don't think I've seen a lot of comedies, even in 91, dropping shit like that. So, like, it felt, again, and this is just for me, but it felt out of place, even in all of the nuttiness around these characters that did live their own lives. Yeah. Um, regardless, uh, I, we're yeah. spending a lot of time on that. This movie, <laughs> again, I appreciate that it exists because there's nothing else like it. Um, for all of its slights and for all of its, uh, you know, uh, uh, having to, I think, not having to, getting to, let's put it this way, getting to rely on nostalgia and silliness and uh, a, a cartoonish sort of uh, vouve, uh, th- I think that we don't get enough of that sort of thing. I think action movies in particular, even silly ones, sometimes take themselves too seriously. And I think this was a really sort of interesting way to sort of take the piss out of that scenario. And um, again, while it is not my favorite uh, cup of tea, 
it is something that I am far more interested to talk about than than revisit on a personal level. I don't know. That's sort of my like end all be all. But I'm I, I'd rather hear from both of you because uh, you guys got the history. <laughs> Patrick, uh, when you rewatched it, did you think it held up to the the twelve year old version of you that loved this movie? It did insofar as like I have a soft spot for movies that are basically like free of consequences. <laughs> like I think I think that's kind of why I like movies like Mystery Alaska, which are like kind of like there's no there, there's like basically nothing. I mean, that actually had kind of a plot. But like the deal with Hudson Hawk is like there's kind of like nothing really risked, you know, like every scene. It's kind of like uh, there's there's just like a. Uh, you're not really afraid ever basically it's kind of like weirdly a comfort movie Mm. and like i realized yeah so one of the things that kind of that i was reminded of seeing it again now is that like you know in a movie you can have a deus ex machina whatever like maybe once and the audience Mm. might (laughs) be okay with it but certainly not more than once and this movie has like infinity wishes right it's like they just were kind of like let's just make it so nothing you know like all the villains are also your friends. And like, you right. can have a scene where you're all just like talking shit to each other and who cares? Maybe someone will die, but maybe not, you know? <laughs> and like, maybe it'll just be fun. <laughs> and like that resonated exactly the same way it did when I was a kid, yeah. which is like, Oh, very fun. I, I oddly loved it because I think uh, there's a part of me that imagines a world where where Hudson Hawk becomes a huge runaway hit of 1991 <laughs> and Terminator 2 gets trounced at the box office by Hudson Hawk and like Bruce Willis goes on to like create his own you know Bruce Willis becomes uh Tom Cruise uh, because he creates his own franchise of Hudson Hawk movies uh and and the reason I imagine this is that like I, you can see like like I kind of pointed out with the last boy scout uh, straight from Hudson Hawk is the last time we kind of see the young, not jaded Bruce Willis. Like he, after this movie, he goes on to Billy Bathgate, Last Boy Scout, uh, Death Becomes Her. You know, like he's already done Die Hard 1, Die Hard 2. He's moved away from Moonlighting. But this is the last hint of the person that was uh, in Moonlighting. Um, and everything mm-hmm. from this point on is all about how tired he is. Um but, you know, there, there are moments of, gl- you know, like amazing glimmers in his filmography. And like this alongside uh, maybe the fifth element are, are worlds where I imagine that like he stumbles onto another franchise un- like Die Hard and like, you know, kind of like Tom Cruise is able to like transcend, you know, one franchise to the next and becomes a superstar in everything he does. But this movie flops and... I still think it, it, to me, oddly, when I watch it, I feel like this is the, you know, like he, he kind of gets thrown into this grizzled uh, action movie kind of guy, the, the, the wise guy sort of thing. But there's not too many movies that actually really play on the fact that he's really funny, you know, like that his comedic timing is really on point and that he has like this sort of great sort of dances kind of choreography about him i think like every movie we see him past this point has this sort of like heaviness and weight to it um so that's what i like about it from just like an imagining of bruce willis's you know career from this point on but i i also think that the movie you know like richard brody says is 
is oddly imaginative and weird and has like strange it feels like it's bursting at the seams with ideas and whether the whole thing comes together as a piece i don't i i I don't i I can appreciate that someone watching it today might go what the fuck is this but then you know like around that period we have the sort of grand extravagance of something like terminator 2 which is bursting at the seams visually you know technically with ideas and visually and then we have something like who framed roger rabbit which is also bursting at the seams with ideas and i think this movie kind of like in a weird way is like the inverted flip of those where where all of that like there's too much stuffed into this movie and it doesn't work whereas in those ones there's like this perfect balance that is struck and i i kind of just I love watching it for how odd it is. It's it's one of those things that I think I love watching to see people's reaction to it, to see how they feel about it. Um, and I think, you know, like, it's oddly visually um, dynamic. You know, like the, like, we're just talking about the scene. We, we don't sort of mention the scene where he's on the back of, a, of an ambulance and he gets thrown out of the back. And he's sort of like tap dancing from one side to the other. Someone throws a cigarette and he's like, ugh, menthol, pitches it on. And it's like just a quick little <laughs> cutaway Bugs Bunny. It's Bugs Bunny, and it really—I—I—I I, I get a kick out of all of that stuff. I think it actually, like, really. When this movie sings, I think it really sings. Um, whether it comes together that, for that's, you know, I don't know. It, it's that scene too is one of those things where it's like when he's on the gurney flying down the highway and he gets to the toll and he throws the change in. He throws the, the change in, yeah. At, at no point did you think, like, he's it's not going to work, right? Like, yeah. that's kind of what I mean, too, that there's, like, no real consequences <laughs> to anything. You're like, obviously, everything's going to be yeah. perfect. And, and the ambulance flies over and explodes? <laughs> I know. I didn't understand why the ambulance exploded. But then uh, he landed. Then he, like... That's he, what he, they did in the 90s. I guess. But then the, gir- the ambulance stops... Right where the CIA are waiting for him, and Butterfinger steps out of a porta potty, you know. And I was like, "Wait, were you waiting for him here the whole time?" Kind yep. of thing, you know. Like, uh, it's got they, that sort of like, each, <laughs> yeah. They each got to introduce themselves in like a way that perfectly is emblematic of their like little personality too, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Almond Joy does a judo chop, and you know, <laughs> Snickers has a little electrode, you know. Yeah, he's Whoops, a nerd. Forgot, and like, yeah, I just, I, I think. <laughs> I like that moment that you mentioned of the uh, of the fax machine and the shredder on one side, and then it's just like the the the, the cutaway gag is so quick of like the shredder, like the paper flying out the other side. It's like quick, clever, snappy. I love it. I just think it's great. There is so one thing that came up watching it now that like you know I was not aware of as a kid was like all the sort of latent. Critic, you know, '90s criticism of like yuppie culture and like yeah. yes. the the fear of like new money and or money in general, really, right? Like the bar is like now like a TGI Fridays firm yeah. bar, you know, and like the Mayflowers themselves were probably like the nightmare vision of like what yuppies as billionaires would be, right? Like yeah, it, like you know, extremely wasteful and materialistic, you know. Well, it's funny because, you know, like I, I kind of refound this movie through listening about the Bonfire of the Vanities and listening. And in, in the podcast for the Bonfire of Vanities, you kind of get the sense that there is a little bit of a requiem for that movie in terms of thinking about it as like maybe a misinterpreted masterpiece. But I rewatch and that movie is entirely filled with the same kind of like fear of yuppie culture and the sort of like the, the understanding of the Reaganite uh, 1980s kind of coming to a grinding halt and we're having to sort of de- you know deal with this class warfare but that is gen- like i watch 
the Bonfire of the Vanities the night before I watched this, and I was like, the Bonfire of the Vanities is a genuinely awful movie. It's it's a genuine, <laughs> it's a dud. You know, and that's directed by fucking Brian De Palma, who's incredible. But that movie is like nothing lands in that movie whatsoever. And I and you know I think. It's odd to me that maybe, well, maybe I'm not sure where Bonfire the Vanities landed on the Razzies. It was also a very maligned film, but that it's a maligned film that I think kind of deserves it. Sure. This is one where I think like, I it's a maligned film that I think is really interesting to watch, you know, and like compelling to and fun to watch. You mentioned how like, you know, in, in the sort of like parallel universe where Hudson Hawk is like, you know, <laughs> the big number one hit over Terminator 2 in 91. <laughs> It is kind of fun to imagine, you know, the scenarios of, of, uh, of you know, Bruce Hudson Hawk, you know, like what, what he would be stealing in, in part two and part three. <laughs> and like, I immediately started thinking of like their bar, which uh, again was a thing that like did not like loom large in my memory as a kid. Did not matter. Time, yeah. You can tell they packed so much like history into that setting. Like the that captain, how, like, the captain's steering yeah. wheel. <laughs> he had to mention the steering wheel that doesn't really relate to anything, but you know that it's like it's supposed to. You know that is something that illustrates like how much they love this place. I could totally see this bar just reappearing in all the movies as their like Millennium Falcon, right? And how it it probably <laughs> maybe it'll blow up in one of the movies, but like how it kind of is always falling apart, or maybe they're always fixing it or something. You know, there's always has to be some crucial point happening at that little at their little <laughs> listen, home base. Listen. Right? I'm I'm here. I'm available. I am ready to pitch <laughs> ideas for Hudson Hawk. The 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 you know Hudson Hawk. The thirty year is it twenty five? Maybe it's thirty years now. Uh, the 30. yeah yeah it is thirty years. Uh, the Hudson Hawk. The thirty year uh, sequel. Uh, I'm here for it. And and like what? Imagine. If we got Bruce Willis excited about it, imagine excited Bruce Willis. There's a whole thing you can find about like how he's doing straight to VOD movies these days. He even, oh, yeah. um, I think just a couple of weeks ago, appeared in a Russian cell phone commercial as a deep fake. And, uh, but it was like one that he agreed to and was like paid for and was like, what, you guys want to use my likeness to like be in a commercial? Yeah, fuck you, do it. I don't have to do anything. And they paid him like a million dollars to do it. So I was like, imagine getting that guy excited to be back on a movie set and doing, you know, like something he cares about. That I think would be amazing. I mean, I hope so. I, 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 in every performance I've seen Bruce Willis do, I, I, I think since, oh, I hate to say this, since Fifth Element? Yeah. <laughs> it's been very, and sometimes I'm, it works, right? But it's been very dour. Yeah. Like, he's been, like, the hyper straight man, and, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if, I, I don't know if if current-day Bruce Willis has the, um, the, 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 the boy-like energy and or charisma that, that sort of fueled the Hudson Hawk days. I don't they, know if it exists I, anymore. I think the closest we'll get is, is maybe some Wes Anderson films, right? Yeah, Moonrise Shows Shingo. a little bit of that. Yeah. He, they, they, they talk got, a little... There's a sort of... 2012 might have been the last time Bruce Willis cared when he did, <laughs> he did Looper and Moonrise Kingdom in, the, in that year. Like, there's even talks like he was fired from The Expendables Part 3 because he wanted so much money for, like, a couple of days. There was, like, a public feud between Sylvester Stallone uh, and him where Sylvester Stallone called him greedy and lazy on Twitter. Um, you know, like, I, 
I, I, I think there's, I think there's still stuff here. Listen, if you can, um, listen to Kevin Smith talk about working with Bruce Willis on uh, Cop Out, where he talks yeah. about it as like one of the roughest experiences of his life. Huh. Um, and and Bruce was just like not having it with uh, with Kevin Smith, uh, despite the fact that they both ended up in Live Free or Die Hard a few years later. Yep. Um, yeah. But or, yeah, or was I, it the other way? It, it wasn't the other way around. I thought they meant doing that. I thought they might have met during that. Yeah, event. I think actually you're right. Sorry, it is. Uh, they they worked on Live Free and Die Hard, Live Free or Die Hard, where he was an, where Kevin Smith was an actor in that movie. And I actually and, like right. that movie. I have Live no problem with Live Free or Die Hard. None. I think it is hot garbage, and you're an insane person if you think that movie is <laughs> good. It's fine. That, Again, see, that's I, that, that movie that movie is hot garbage, and I would never watch it again. Hudson Hawk, I would watch any day of the week. I gotta say, <laughs> I might watch Live Free or Die Hard before I watch Hudson Hawk again. That's, uh, I mean, like, if you have the if you have the the affection for it, but I I think that I don't even have garbage. affection for it. <laughs> I, I I just think it's fine. Like I enjoyed it at the time. I have fond memories. I mean, it probably doesn't hold up well. Like yeah. I don't know. Die Hard and, with a Vengeance. Die Hard Two. They hold up. Yeah. Well. The, yeah. All the Die Hard. The 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 the, the three Die Hards. The classics yeah. hold up. Yeah. The dies hard. The dies <laughs> hard. The dies are so hard. Everybody, this has been the only podcast about the film Hudson Hawk, even though we did reference another podcast that talked about Hudson Hawk. No, ha- about the Bonfire of the Vanities. But it was brought this up. This was almost the podcast about the Bonfire of the Vanities. The Bonfire of the Vanities. <laughs> yeah. oh, would, this has almost been the podcast about Bonfire of the Vanities. Patrick, <laughs> buddy, it's been so nice to catch up and chat with you about this film. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. When, when you're not reliving childhood wonderment uh, of, of your cinematic past and and amending your uh, favorite film pick, where can folks find you? Uh, I am on Twitter, at Patrick Hosmer. Excellent, excellent. Shahir, when you are not burning through magnetic tape spinning so hard and so fast in a VCR that it might just turn to gold. Where can folks find you? Oh man, there would be so much gold in my basement. I wonder if that VCR collection is still there. Some VHS collection is still there. Yeah. Either way, my nostalgia trips go uh, on for long rants, uh, and you can find more of them at my website www.shahirdad.com. That's S H A H I R D A U D. Matt, when you are not executing the fire sale that may destroy America, where can people find you? Oh boy, oh boy! You can find me at my website. Uh, you know, being the guy on the donkey at m a t t h e w k r o l dot com for my life and works. Also. Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram, or Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, we didn't say this up top. Do you like the show? Do you listen to it? Do you want to talk at us and have us read what you talk at us digitally through typeface? You should probably email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. Do you have an affinity for Hudson Hawk? Do you think it's a really great film? Do you think it's kind of meh? Do you think that you'd never want to see Bruce Willis again, or would you marry him in a heartbeat? Let us know all of those answers and whatever other cinematic nuttery you want to throw at us. Uh, at that email. You can also uh, tweet at us at OnlyMoviePod. Uh, next week, there'll be a movie. There will be a movie. Because uh, there's, there's always <laughs> a movie, Patrick. There's I've always one. Yeah. I've heard of them. Cinematic yeah. motion picture movie films. Um, and, and we're going to talk at you about that cinematic motion picture movie film next time. Imagine if Hudson Hulk was the last movie we did on this podcast. The it list, like, that's <laughs> it. The podcast is over. Yeah, we started with Mad Max Fury Road. We went through <laughs> over 300 episodes and we landed on Hudson Hawk. Well, it's I mean, been a great another ride. movie about a guy in a movie not really about him where things just happen. There we go. So, yeah, there there we go. go. 
Anyway, everybody, we'll talk at you next week. Thanks so much for listening. All right, bye. Good night. Bye.